Hey everybody, it's Dr. Sophie. Welcome back to our weekly podcast. Hope that you're enjoying the work that we're doing. We have some really great experts on here, topics that I hope are pertinent to your life and help you grow all of us as a community, as individuals, and as parents, keeping our children safe and trying to be happy and mentally healthy. Last week, we talked about the positives of pets. We had some really interesting concepts, calls, voicemails, emails. We had great guests in the studio, and we had a great guest online uh, calling in to us and really answered a lot of questions. We discussed how owning a pet might just improve your social life, how it affects your brain, how it affects all parts of your life. We talked about how to properly take care of your pets and much, much more. And it's not just about taking care of your pet. It's the meaning of the taking care of the pet. And does it really add something to your life? And is it almost like training wheels before you have a baby to have a dog or a pet? Lots of great questions answered from a mental health perspective as well as a loving your animal perspective. So take a listen. All of the information and all of my other podcasts are on my app, which is free on iTunes, or on my website at www.drsophie.com. So please help yourself learn, ask questions, write into us 24-7. we got a call-in number for you at 1-855-767-4966. We are always there for you. This week, however, we are talking about a very interesting topic that affects everybody, and it is understanding your child's temperament. So do you have a grouchy child? Do you have a happy child? Do you have an anxious child? Do you have a child who has all of that stuff and is it developmental? Is this the way my child should be acting? Lots of questions parents have. I get a ton of them every day. Is my child like this because I'm like this or their father's like this or is it genetics? Is it the way we are we doing something wrong? Tons of questions to answer about a child's temperament, how it gets to be that way, how we can change it or whatever we need to do. So we are going to be talking a lot today about that. We have a great expert on with us learning about what is temperament and why is it so important in a psychiatric illness and does it give us a red flag or a warning sign that ooh, ooh, if you see this, we've got to watch out, we might end up with that disorder. Today we are talking about children's temperaments and really its relationship to life in general and any connection to psychiatric illnesses and disorders in children. And with me is my guest expert, Dr. David Ritu. He's a child psychiatrist at the University of Vermont College of Medicine. He directs the Pediatric Psychiatric Clinic. He's the author of Child Temperament, New Thinking About the Boundary Between Traits and Illnesses. Dr. Ritu, are you with us? I am. Hey, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thank you. How's Vermont? Right now, it's gorgeous. Full I fall bet. colors all over the place. Is there lots of maple syrup? That's a springtime thing, but yes, there's ah, a lot of it around. Very nice. So tell me a little bit about you and what you do. Well, I'm a child psychiatrist. Uh, I run our pediatric psychiatry clinic, and I do a mix of seeing patients and families. I run a training program to, to train new child psychiatrists, and I do research mainly in this area of temperament and personality. Very nice. So... Just a little bit, like so our listeners can understand, when we say temperament, what do we actually mean? I think a good way to, to think about it is uh, temperament might be conceptualized as the foundations of our personality. And one metaphor I really like for people who are musically inclined is if you consider a person's life to be a symphony, the, the temperament is the key that that music is in. And some people live more in A, a minor and some people more in G major. Interesting. And... Do we see temperament or we feel temperament? I mean, you know, as the person who has it, you know, our own temperament. Is it something we behave? Is it something we feel? Is it 
combo? Well, uh, a lot and people debate what the major dimensions are, but uh, really three things usually emerge. One is a, a dimension that a lot of people call something like extroversion, which relates to how much somebody craves excitement, being around a lot of people, liking high energy things. There's a dimension that's called negative affectivity and some other things that refer to how easily somebody experiences negative emotions like fear or anger. And then often there's a regulatory dimension which basically states how well can you keep some of these other dimensions in check when you need to work towards a goal or uh, when the situation calls for it. Okay. So is it safe to say that temperament is a manifestation of how we feel our feelings? Yes, and, and it's the way we typically behave. Uh, the, the way we typically interact with our environment might be another way of saying it. Okay. So let me just be clear here. Um, what, do, what do you think, though, are the core pieces of a, of a temperament? Are there types of it, or does every temperament have all of the same components, or are there variables? Well, people debate this, and uh, I, you know, I talked about those three major dimensions, and some people basically will say you can get a score on any of those dimensions, and everybody has sort of a unique profile. But uh, other research shows that there may be some distinguishable temperament types, uh, that, that these, these combinations come together in predictable ways. And I've described five types as uh, one being a, a moderate type, people who have sort of average levels of dimensions, a mellow type, an agitated type, a confident type, and finally an anxious type. Oh, so tell me a little bit about each. Well, uh, the moderate is, you know, kind of average levels on, on all dimensions, as I said before. The, the mellow type, they tend to have lower levels of that extroversion or approach behavior, but they're not particularly anxious, and they tend to have pretty decent regulatory skills. So they're kind of even. Yeah, they're kind of even. Um, not a lot of high energy, though. Okay. Agitated uh, tend to have higher levels of, of, of energy and excitement, but also may be more prone to some of the negative emotions like anger and, uh, and uh, anxiety. The confident type tends to have high levels of extroversion and sociability, lower in anxiety, and generally good regulatory skills. And then finally, the anxious group are higher in that uh, negative emotionality, but a bit lower on the, the regulation and lower extroversion. And tell me, how you, did you measure these in people, or how did you come up with this? Well, what I was doing is I was summarizing the research literature. And, and while you know, these, these categories don't drop from the sky and people give them different names, there are these statistical techniques that, can, that are grouping procedures that can identify these different groups. Okay. So I want to read you an email from Brian from Santa Barbara who's asking us something, and then I want to go back to another question I had. So Brian from Santa Bar Barbara is asking, my almost two-year-old daughter can be extremely moody. This being my first child, I'm not sure if this is just a phase or a permanent part of her temperament. Should I be concerned? Is there something I should do? What do you think? Well, I would say, you know, moodiness is uh, almost a toddler's job sometimes. Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't uh, take moodiness by itself as a sign that it's a problem. And, and there are many, many quite moody and oppositional toddlers who grow out of this and don't have problems with that later in life. And then how would a parent know, though, that it's time to reach to someone like you? Well, I mean, I think if there's a question, it's, it's great to bring it up with a, a, the regular pediatrician or, or sometimes a mental health counselor. But often what we're looking at is, is differences in degrees. You know, you want somebody who knows what the typical range of a three-year-old is, and it's not as though that this is somebody who's 
qualitatively different, but there's just a lot more of it to a degree that causes problems. Okay, so really you're saying go to somebody who knows what they're talking about with this stuff, not always just... If you're really stuck, generally. right? I mean, there's no instruction book, so a lot of times we don't really know, and especially for first parents, you don't have a lot to compare to. Okay, thank you. So I want to go back to my question, and it's what traits would you say are considered basically good and bad? I wouldn't say any of them are good and bad, and I think a lot of the big traits have components that... Uh, our culture, at least, would consider to be good or bad, and, and that brings up another issue. I think different cultures value different traits a little differently. Right. So, like, tell me more about that, because that's what we all see at, if we do clinical work. That's right. It's a cultural perspective you have to put that behavior into. Absolutely. Like in the, in the sort of the extroversion domain, people really love the spontaneous, the excitability, the charisma, but sometimes that also comes along with being a little bit more impulsive, sometimes maybe being a, a bit more hot-headed. Um, and the other, the other dimension about negative affectivity, those folks can be quick to get uh, upset and, and worried, but on the same time they can be very sensitive and very kind. Uh, and it's interesting because when we catch ourselves describing sort of that ideal partner or that ideal child, often what we do is we, we sort of cherry pick the good parts of a dimension and leave aside the, the, the parts we don't like. And that can be in nature to be a, a more difficult thing to find. Yeah. So tell me how do, like if people, our listeners are saying, well, I'm trying to decide if I should date this person or marry this person. And how do they verify for themselves that they're not in some cloud only looking at the good stuff? Yeah, I think we have to sort of remember that uh, a lot of us come more like a, a prefix menu, and, and we can't mm -hmm. exactly order a la carte and say, well, I want somebody who's going to be really excitable and, and spontaneous, but I also want them to be extremely responsible and punctual, because that's a combination that just might be tough. And I think many happy couples realize that they have to take the entire package and just treasure somebody for it. Okay, but how do you do that? What would you say to somebody? Well, I would, I would say that uh, you recognize that uh, these ideal, uh, sometimes fairy tales, uh, don't exist that easily in nature and that, uh, you know, you have to accept the whole package. And then to some degree, I think these traits and the negative parts of the traits are to some degree modifiable. And you, you recognize that you, you can help somebody do this, but sometimes you're working against the grain in a little bit, and it takes some extra effort. Okay, and what about telling somebody, and I, I know this might sound like it's just you're just trying to tell them whatever, but why can't their negative stuff about that other person be helpful to them a little bit to teach them a little bit about themselves? It certainly can be, right. And some of the, even the things that we consider to be more negative emotions, uh, you know, people who are fearful of new situations, you know, a lot of times that can be very, uh, very adaptive, especially when there's a dangerous situation and caution is, is needed. So would you agree or disagree with the statement that if somebody irritates you a lot, maybe they're doing stuff that you don't like about yourself or you can learn through it or from it? That's, yeah, or sometimes what can be a difficult combination is when two people are very similar. Mm, um, and that's not good. Two people are both the same way, and that can often sort of rub each other the wrong way. Yeah. Okay. So I want to go back to the cultural thing quickly. So if you're treating a child brought to you or somebody's brought to you and they're, you know, they're out of control or the school's saying or whatever, but within the culture it's okay because it's within their boundaries of acceptance, how do you help a family understand that in this culture that they're living, because the parents may have come from a different country or something, that their child is really not fitting in, even though they may have fit in where they came from. How do you do that? 
Well, in our in our own clinic, and we uh, we do we actually have instruments that can measure that. Ah. We can measure, uh, you know, how much a certain behavior is atypical of someone of the same sex and age, and then we can also use it to compare countries. Ah, that's so interesting. We can so also look at a country of origin for a child and say, well, in in this culture, that wouldn't be seen as out of bounds. But right. In this culture, it would. Right. And so there's ways to help parents understand that, that have acculturated from their country here or wherever, and give them that perspective. That's right. And we show that to them. We just show them the results. Really cool. Okay. Let's take a voicemail. Hang on. Hi, my name is Alexa, and I'm a kindergarten teacher at a local elementary school. Um, we do a lot of behavioral evaluations of students to track their progress and development, but I find that I struggle because, although we don't really say it um, so explicitly, I worry that these types of evaluations uh, lead to some teachers labeling children as sort of the bully of the class or the bad kid when, you know, they're really just children with lots of energy and opinions that are maybe expressed at inappropriate times in the classroom. Do you have any advice on, you know, how to tell the difference perhaps between the behaviors and traits that kids will really grow out of um, and those that are more deeply rooted and perhaps should be dealt with at uh, that young of an age? Thanks so much. That's such a, a key question because many parents, I'm sure that you see all the time, they wait till the last minute. They don't want to bring a child in because they don't want to get labeled. And then you have other parents who are bringing them in before because they feel better when they're labeled. And, you know, and does that change the opinion of a teacher or a school or whatever? You know, what do you think? Yeah, I do, I do think she brings up a, a great point. And I, I would say a couple things. I think labels in some degree are... are uh, are around us no matter what we do and I and while some people may be nervous about applying a clinical label like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder I'm not sure other labels that might be applied to the same child like lazy or bad right. are, are any better right so do kids grow out of some of this stuff or how do you know they're gonna grow out of something it's hard to know who's gonna grow out and and temperamental traits are certainly somewhat stable over time but I think uh, one of the myths about temperament is that it's it's very stable it's like your destiny and that's not really true at all the the correlations across time are are really modest and a lot of people can shift maybe not to the extremes you don't see really shy people becoming social butterflies later on but you do see a lot of moderation and a lot of room for for change over time okay so that brings two questions to me is there an age where you would say things are pretty set that they're going to be within a certain parameter? Is it like 5, 10, 3? Well, no, there's a lot of flux in that time. There's a, a famous personality researcher who basically said that the age was 30. Uh -huh. and so that there's not much room after 30, and what you see is what you're going to get, um, a bit of an oversimplification. But even within the younger child groups, uh, I think there's a lot of room for movement. If you see the same trait at multiple time periods, then I think you have more confidence that that's going to persist. Okay, and then what would you tell our listeners who are saying, well, you're saying we can change some of this stuff over time or whatever, we're not stuck in one way. What things do you throw at it to try to change it? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the home environment and, um, and how uh, parents approach that. Uh, parents kind of think that they uh, all parent their kids exactly the same, but, but research is showing that we tend to be very reactive at times and sometimes what a temperament of a child can do is it can pull out of parents 
uh, certain aspects that tend to reinforce those traits. So, for example, for a child who's temperamentally more irritable, that can be a real challenge for a lot of us, and it may pull out kind of more irritable responses that then reinforce that trait. Ah, that's interesting. Go through that again. Like, give our listeners are really going to need to hear that again. Yeah, I mean, this is a this I think takes into account our research what we know about genetics and in the environment, and it has a fancy name. It's called a evocative gene environment correlation. Um, mm. but, it, but it basically says uh, what we all know about how, how people can pull the best out of us. They can they can bring the best out of us or the worst out of us. And parenting can work work the same way. And so one of the things we try to teach parents is that sometimes they need to override, that's the word I try to use, that they have to push the override button in what's a very natural reaction. Okay, so I mean, that helps them because they feel they're not out of the ordinary if it's a natural reaction. It's just really trying to control it. Yeah, we, we try in our clinic not to, not to point fingers. I think our field in psychiatry had a, a time when we really blame parents for everything. And now I think we've gone to the other extreme where we're now kind of almost ignoring parents. And I think what we need is a healthy balance and to say, look, um, you know, you're important here. You have a lot, of, a lot of impact, but we recognize that this is very difficult and that in some cases your kids are really pulling these responses out of you. So, like, give me an example. Well, um, take an anxious, a very anxious child. Everybody wants to protect their child. Um, and when a, when a kid is showing a lot of anxiety, our reaction is to, to jump in and help them. Uh, and in some cases, that can lead to overprotection, and it can lead to overshielding to the point where they don't have the, the chances to be exposed to the things and gain mastery over their anxiety. Okay. And so the more that you're trying to protect your kid, the more you're trying, you're really crippling them. Yeah, it's a very natural reaction, but in some cases it can actually work against what you're trying to do. And then the more you protect your child, the angrier you're getting at your child, maybe? Sometimes. Sometimes people get very frustrated at having to do that. And uh, a lot of things in parenting is is really striking a, a difficult balance. And most of us do pretty well with that. We, we, we don't have to be perfect. Uh, I just think it's good to be to be mindful of of the way you uh, you react and sometimes deliberately take a different course if it's not working. Okay, so you are saying nobody has to be perfect. Absolutely, I'm saying that. Yes. Okay, so tell us a little bit about why temperament is so important in diagnosing a psychiatric disorder in a child. Well, I think it's really fundamental to uh, the way that these behaviors exist. Our our um, our system sort of teaches us to categorize psychiatric illness. Uh, it's like something that you do, you have it or you don't have it. But our research is showing over and over again that for many things, it just doesn't exist that way and that symptoms and behaviors exist more like, like blood pressure or height or intelligence. They, they're on a, on a continuum or, or a spectrum and that what we're doing when we're making a diagnosis is essentially setting up a speed limit uh, saying, you know, beyond this point, we're going to call this a disease, but it's, uh, a, it's not really the way things work in nature. And so can somebody have a psychiatric illness one year and maybe not the next if they developmentally grow or you put things into place and it's gone? Sure. Well, there are some, some psychiatric illnesses that are cyclical in nature, and so they will come and go. Like what? Well, things like a clinical depression. 
okay. uh, you know, can sometimes come on uh, pretty suddenly and unexpectedly. But other things like uh, ADHD or some kind of generalized anxiety, those tend to be more stable and those tend to be more linked to specific personality and temperament traits. Are they ever genetic? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it turns out that when people study this, and the way you study this frequently is by looking at twin studies, and uh, most temperament traits uh, look like they're about around 50% genetically influenced, with the other half being about uh, environment. And that's pretty similar to most of the psychiatric disorders, although some are more genetically influenced than others. Interesting, interesting. Okay, I want to read you an email from Ashley from New York. Are the factors that lead to a child being unhappy the same factors that, if heightened, could cause another child to become depressed? That's a, you know, that's a really fantastic question, and that's actually an area that I'd like to spend some of my research time on. Um, and I think she gets at a very important and subtle point, which is that um, just because something exists on a continuum on the surface level, that doesn't necessarily mean that beyond that, when we get to the underlying causes or the, or the neuroscience or the biology, that those things are existing on a continuum as well. And I think and when it comes to temperament and psychopathology, we don't really know. It looks as though um, there are some shared factors that some of the same genes that cause people to be, say, a little bit anxious are also the exact same genes that cause people to have anxiety disorders. But there may be things hidden, uh, causes of psychiatric disorders that we don't recognize yet that may be unique just to people with the full disorders and not with uh, lower levels or temperamental trait levels. So there's variability. Yes, for sure. And then it can be all kinds of things that play into it. So whatever's yeah. making me unhappy but really making you anxious could be also your genetics, the parental environment you grew up in, maybe trauma, whatever. All those things can, can weigh in both on temperament and psychiatric disorders. And when people look at uh, brain scans, they do neuroimaging studies, the brain regions that are involved in personality traits are often the exact same regions that are involved in specific psychiatric disorders. Interesting. And so does every, everything that you diagnose as a psychiatric disorder need medication? No, absolutely not. And I think that's why thinking about temperament and personality are really important because think about high blood pressure, which also exists on a continuum. If you show up to the doctor and you have a little bit of high blood pressure, they're not going to throw out the biggest medicines they can at you right away. They might talk about exercise. They might talk about diet. And I think uh, those of us in psychiatry and child psychiatry should be thinking about that the same way. We should be thinking about lots of non-pharmacological interventions, especially when symptoms are not so severe. Got it. Okay. Let's do another voicemail. Dr. Sophie, this is Dave calling about my five-year-old Mike. He's normally a very fun-loving, happy kid, but when he gets tired and he gets late in the day, he has fairly wild swings in his temperament and some pretty aggressive, almost lashing out behavior. I wanted to know if you think that's something that we should be wary of, it's something we should try to change, or something he'll just grow out of. Looking forward to your thoughts. Thanks. Thank you. I'm so sure many parents have that same question, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And what and do I you do? Well, I think this caller uh, maybe, has, maybe has a leg up because it looks like they have identified a, possibly a causative factor for why the child is, is more disruptive at certain times, which is fatigue. So like a trigger. 
Yeah, and uh, that can be true for lots, certainly true for babies, and I think we underestimate how that can be true for older children as well. So the first step for them might be to see how, how the child does when, when uh, he or she gets a little more rest. And then, you know, like more structured or put them to bed regularly or whatever? That's right, and then see what's left. And uh, if it really is due to being fatigued, then that should help. Otherwise, it may be, you know, more intrinsic to the child's temperament. Got it. So that's how you'll be able to kind of decipher how much is really you can physically address and feed them more, structure them more, sleep more, and how much maybe is overlying behavior that needs to be addressed in a different way. Sure. Yeah, we're always looking for causes that we can do something about and change, and that's always a good place to start. Okay. So um, what do you think parents need to know about their child's temperament in general? Well, I think that they uh, it's, it's worth the exercise to really think about it consciously and, and think about their own temperament, too, and, and look about ways that those two or, or the whole family's temperament works together and not and doesn't work together at times. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to go into a full evaluation and take lots of questionnaires, but most parents have a pretty good idea about where their child is on these dimensions. Okay. And so do you think, are you a believer or not a believer that a child's temperament kind of sets the tone or creates a home environment? I would say that, um, especially in the more extreme temperaments, that uh, I, I am more of a believer. I sometimes like the analogy that that a, a child's temperament, kind of like a big mountain, can create its own weather. And so sometimes a child's temperament can can sort of set the tone for a family environment that, that can work and in some cases not work so well. And And I've had many parents tell me, and I'm sure you've had a lot, that tell you, like, we're just scared. We, we walk on eggshells. And yes. should parents do that? Do they give in to that? Do they then get behind that kind of anxiety and fear and live through that? What are they, what are they supposed to do? Well, that's a, that's a tough one, and it doesn't lend itself to, uh, I think, an easy answer. We try to customize something that works for, for each kid. Um, but I, I hear that expression a lot, and, and a, I think a lot of the effort that we sometimes do is trying to figure out really what is, what is setting this kid off. What are, what are the things that we can do before the meltdowns that we can try to prevent them, um, whereas parents a lot of times sort of react afterwards, and at that point sometimes it's a bit too late. So being proactive and taking them through these steps, helping them find triggers. That's right. And then putting things into place. Right, and genetics tells us that in some families, certainly not all families, but in some families, if a child is dysregulated, there might be a parent that's struggling with dysregulation themselves. And so one of the best ways to help the child is actually to help the parents with their own regulatory skills. Yeah. I mean, tell, talk a little bit about reg dysregulation. What do you mean specifically? Well, I think dysregulation gets at that dimension that we were talking about, the ability to, to uh, recognize emotions and be able to keep them in check. Um, so kids who, you know, kids have temper tantrums, but um, when these are extreme, more aggressive outbursts, um, when kids seem like they're chronically ready to explode, that their moods go from zero to 60, um, that's that dysregulated profile that we're talking about. Okay. So this will be the last thing. If you had to sum up how parents should approach their child's temperament in one thought, what would it be? Boy, that's a good one. I would, uh, I would probably say... Um, to be uh, conscious in your approach to it, to be very deliberate in trying to problem-solve ways that a child's temperament is, is working or not working in a specific situation. 
Don't react. Mm-hmm. Try not to react. Right. right. Try to think through it a little rather than knee-jerk reactions, as you say. So tell me a little bit about your book so, and how we can find it. Well, the book you can find through all the regular online uh, sources and through the publisher, which is uh, W.W. Norton. Um, it's written to uh, be accessible to non-scientists. I really tried to keep the amount of jargon uh, to a minimum. Uh, the first part of the book really talks a lot about the world of child temperament and personality, and the entire second part is devoted to practical strategies for parents and for educators and for he- mental health professionals on how to work with temperament. Okay, and where's your blog? Because your blog is something we really definitely need to access. The blog you can find on uh, Psychology Today. Okay. It's called uh, the uh, ABCs of Child Psychiatry. And people can also go to my uh, Facebook and, and Twitter site, uh, PD Psych, and links to all those things can be found there as well. Okay, and we'll be tweeting you because you tweeted us. Yes, I like to use that quite a bit. I noticed you have one or two followers. I, I don't look at it. Do I have some? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a few, I'd say. Oh, good. Well, I'll be tweeting you. Great. Thank you so much for your time, your expertise, and your hard work, because it really helps families and children really get on their feet. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about all this. Stay warm and enjoy your fall time up there. Thank you. Bye. Well, that was very interesting. Joining me was Dr. David Ratu. He's a child psychiatrist at the University of Vermont College of Medicine. He trains child psychiatry fellows. He teaches. He writes books. He's got a blog on psychology today called The ABCs of Child Psychiatry. He has over 100 published articles. He has a book, which we've got to get a hold of, called The uh, Child Temperament, New Thinking About the Boundary Between Traits and Illness. And I think it's so important because in this day and age where kids are medicated and labeled and schools oftentimes need the child to be in a better framework or a behavioral spectrum, They don't allow the child back into school until they're evaluated, and if they don't come back with a label, sometimes it's a problem. It's really a bad kind of setup. So I think talking today really helped parents and give you an access to find out more if you have more questions. When your child is behaving in a way that isn't really meshing with school or society or yourself or the home environment, there are ways to look at these things proactively and to be able to extinguish a lot of these behaviors before they become problems and your child has to either be medicated or labeled. So I think early intervention is the key. So I want you to learn a lot today and there's four key things that I think you need to take away from today. And the first thing is uh, temperament is basically looked at as the foundation or the bottom line layer of our personality. So how we deal with our emotions is really our temperament and it's like the core bottom of the building that we're building of our personality. It's also uh, very interesting to understand and learn more about that, the types of personalities. And Dr. Renu talked about five types that he's identified. And take a listen because they're all very interesting. And I'm sure we all fall into one or two of them. I think it's also important to understand that temperament is different in degrees. There's a really intense type. There's a not intense type. And Understanding your temperament is the best way to help the problem. So you really have to know yourself in order to be able to help your child and understand their temperament. Again, like charity begins at home. I think the fourth thing that's really very important to understand is the cultural influences to a temperament. Because in many cultures, certain things are okay. Maybe being angry is okay or being you know loud or boisterous or comedic or whatever it is, but within a framework. And if it doesn't work in the culture you're living in, there's a disconnect. And oftentimes children fall into that crack and get labeled or medicated. So it's important. Dr. Renu talked about ways in his clinic that they measured 
between cultures and to be able to help parents understand how to do things better so it meshes better. So there's really four or five great tips on here that I want you to listen to, but the whole thing is really very important and very uh, informative. And then there's some really great resources to answer more of your questions. So help yourself. They're all on iTunes for free on my phone app, and they're all on my website as well, www.drsophie.com. My voicemail is always available to you at 1-855-767-4966. My book, Side by Side, The Revolutionary Mother-Daughter Program for Conflict-Free Communication, is always there to help yourself too. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook. Visit iTunes to download the full version of Andy Grammer's Keep Your Head Up. And the most important thing is, don't forget to sweep. But you gotta keep your head up, oh, and you can let your head down, hey. You gotta keep your head up, oh, and you can let your head down.